When Americans think of Canada, maple syrup, unshakable politeness, and universal health care come to mind. But Canada, like the United States, has a blood-soaked history of settler colonialism, white supremacy, and genocide that is still playing out to this very day. The prime ministership of Justin Trudeau, leader of the Liberal Party, has done little to address these systemic issues beyond paying lip service, joining the Democratic Party in a grotesque aestheticization of politics characteristic of centrist liberalism. This week, I sat down with Rob Rousseau, host of the Insurgents and 49th Parallel, to discuss why Canada is not a social democratic utopia, the insidiousness of liberalism, and escalating conflicts between Mi'kmaq, lobstermen, and settlers. I'm Aaron, and this is A Time of Monsters. Thanks for coming on, Rob. It's a pleasure. Hell yeah! It's been it's been a long time coming, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been talking about this for a while now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess where I wanted to start is that Americans think of Canada as like some sort of social democratic utopia. Like, you know, people would be like universal health care. Bernie went there, right, to get insulin. Yeah. Uh, that was like a fraction of the price of like how much it costs in the U.S. and like you know legal weed and shit. So like, uh, but it's not. Canada is not a social democratic utopia. Uh, no, no. And, uh, <laughs> it's funny because there's like a lot of people in this country that I think have convinced themselves of that as well. And it's really easy for people that are like living in this country and politicians in this country to just kind of like point to the never ending fucking disgraceful <laughs> shit show in America and just be like, look, we're not, we're not that. So you should yeah. just be happy. Exactly. Like you guys like could go to the hospital, like with the broken yeah. leg and not like die. Like, weeks later because of an infection or some shit. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I don't want to take anything away from that. I mean, it's, uh, I think having yeah. universal healthcare, it's been beneficial to me for my whole life. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think as much as that is, I think something that's very positive about living here, a lot of people that live here, uh, kind of have their heads in the sand about certain things about the way this country operates and what, what it's all about. And, why, um, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's been a it's been a very specific, like deliberate kind of marketing campaign uh, over the last couple of decades to kind of sell this idea of Canada as being like, oh, we're just the friendly neighbors and we're polite yeah. and we're kind of it's post-racial and we don't have all these kind of complex social problems like in the United States and everything's great. And, you know, it's all just about like early morning hockey practices and you know, Tim <laughs> yeah. Hortons and stuff like that. And it's really that's all it is. It's a marketing campaign yeah. that gets sold to people that live here. It gets sold to people in the United States. Mm. And uh, a lot of people believe it. And that's, I think, some in some of the work, like the work that I've been doing over the last couple of years, podcasting and stuff, it's one of the things I've been trying to dispel and try to speak to people both in the America and in Canada mm-hmm. to be like, no, this country is not good. I mean, having universal health care is great. Sure, fine. But it's like, we need to be better. We need to be better on a lot of fronts. And it, it benefits only the like the ruling class to pretend that we are this like socialist utopia uh, that's, you know, that's moved past all these all these social problems and racism and all this stuff, because we have all the same issues, even if maybe the volume might be turned down a little bit. Well, well what I found interesting, man, is that um, as an American, you were talking about this this idea being sold to not just Canadians, but Americans as well. And as a black American and as someone who like you know, voted for Obama. And when I became radicalized, still saw Trudeau, who Obama like supported as, yeah. again, being kind of an ignorant American as sort of like, you know, this progressive, right, who had 
the most diverse cabinet, right? I think in Canadian history, right? Yeah. The, the ministers he had appointed. And then that blackface shit came out. <laughs> That's not great. That's not great for the, the progressive golden boy. Is it? <laughs> and he was smiling and enjoying. Oh, yeah. You know? That's great, he was perfect. having a great time. Yeah. Or just like brown face, right? But still like just terrible. So like, yeah. Talk a little bit about like Trudeau. And I believe that his father also was an actual like socialist and like prime minister before that who was a bit more radical than him. Talk about like Trudeau and how he's kind of not not anything like his father, I guess, or yeah. even like. Well, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't even go so far as to say his father mm. was a socialist. I mean, he did some good things. Uh, there's there's actually some great anecdotes in Castro's book about how Trudeau visited Castro and they kind of hit it off a little bit, uh, and they were kind of buddies. But Trudeau was was still not not a not a, not a socialist, the mm. the senior. But uh, Justin definitely the uh, and I mean the, the thing is about Justin Trudeau is he's a lib and he's kind of the ultimate lib. <laughs> uh, he's like, you know, he's the, he's part of this political dynasty. He's got the like boyish good looks, the curly hair. I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's aged into the kind of elder statesman look now, but he's a daddy. He rebranded himself. Yeah, exactly. He <laughs> rebranded. But, um, what, what Trudeau is really good at, and, and if you're not paying attention, he can fool you with this is he's really good at talking about progressive issues mm. and talking about the environment and talking about indigenous issues and reconciliation and feminism or whatever, whatever progressive cause that you want to believe in. And he can, he's very sincere sounding when he talks about this stuff and he looks right into the camera and he's got the big, you know, the, the dewy eyes yeah. and he looks very sincere and he, and, he, and when he talks about these issues, but this is like the liberal sleight of hand and Obama was the master of this as well, right? As, as exactly. convincing people that he is this progressive champion. But he then ran turns, as a progressive. Exactly. And, but then when it, when it comes time to govern and when it comes time to make laws, uh, suddenly that kind of progressive streak goes away. And you realize that the progressivism that people kind of see in that, it's all happening. It's all in rhetoric. It's all in words and speeches. Mm. Uh, and when he's actually legislating, he's legislating in the opposite direction. He's talking about how important, you know, climate change is and how we need to hit, uh, you know, our, the targets, the Paris uh, emissions targets. And meanwhile, he's buying oil pipelines and he's doubling down on like extraction infrastructure. Exactly. Uh, he, he, he talks about like indigenous reconciliation and, and finally healing this like longstanding wound that we've had in this country with our indigenous communities. Uh, and then he, yeah, and then, yeah, he, he builds oil pipelines like across indigenous land and then sends in the RCMP to terrorize these communities when they're trying mm. to build blockades to stop this like pipeline infrastructure. So this is, I think this is like a liberal thing, right? And this is like, this is why I think it's good even for Americans to pay attention to what Trudeau does because just like it's good for for Canadians to pay attention to figures like Obama and and people in the Democratic Party, because this is the liberal sleight of hand. This is what they're really good at doing. If you if you get to that kind of upper echelon, is sounding very sincere when you talk about these progressive causes and convincing people on a surface level that you care about this stuff. Uh, but meanwhile, you're you're siding each and every time with the banks, the police, the oil companies. Uh, you're siding with the ruling class and advancing the interests of the ruling class. Uh, so that's kind of the way I see the breakdown between someone like Trudeau who's a liberal and someone who's an actual leftist because he doesn't act, it's all just words and rhetoric and, uh, and it's kind of a sleight of hand that he's pulling off. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people believe it. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, um, like Obama, right? He, I think when he was running, there was anti-war sentiment in Europe and to the interests of, I guess, the military industrial complex and like sort of the military class in the U S they, they, kind of understood, and I guess maybe even the Democratic Party, right, understood that Obama, because he was such a sort of pretty face and because of the way he spoke, that this would sort of like, I guess, quell 
any anti-war sentiment in Europe because the face of the Iraq war previously was like worn by Bush, right? Like this sort yeah. of stupid, apish kind of man, right? But like the liberal appeal is aesthetic, you know? Yeah, exactly. You guys actually do have another party, right? A sort of, I guess, social democratic party, the NDP. Yeah. I mean, ideally, that's what kind ideally. of supposed to be. Yeah. That's what they would like, but they've also moved away from that. I mean, definitely they're they're like more left than the liberals. Uh, they've got a long, a longer history with like, of like involvement with the labor movement and stuff. But I mean, they've they've moved away over the past couple of decades uh, away from that kind of social democratic roots. They've taken any mention of socialism out of their charter. Mm-hmm. Um, they they reached their highest electoral victories, kind of running as just a slightly left liberal party, or maybe like a little bit more of a of, to the left of the liberal party, but still kind of trying to be this kind of centrist thing. And in many ways, like, there's definitely there's activists within the NDP that are that are really great. There's there's certain members of parliament in the NDP that are great that are trying to kind of push them back in that direction. Uh, the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, he's a he's a cool guy. He's charismatic. Uh, he's he's got a bunch of good ideas. He's been very strong on a number of issues, like criminal justice. For one, is is something that he's been pretty strong on. Um, and in the last election campaign, he was kind of starting to push the party more in that direction talking more about class and talking about that kind of divide and, you know, striking that kind of tone and kind of getting people excited by that. But uh, it wasn't really, it was a little bit too little too late. uh, Number one, they've also been pretty rotten over the last couple of years on like imperialism issues. They voted for the the bombing of Libya back in 2014. Israel, Palestine is like a a non-issue. Then it's like, (laughs) it's impossible to even mention the word word Palestine or, or criticize Israel without like having like a lot of people jump down your throat. They're in lockstep with the U.S. on that, man. Yeah, exactly. So they, they've got a long way to go to be like an, an actual kind of like left party. But definitely compared to the Democratic Party, I, you, they would definitely seem like that for sure. Because the Democratic Party is probably to the right of the conservative party who, in this country. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the Democrats, I always, I always say the Democrats would actually be reactionaries, right? Yeah, yeah. They would, <laughs> like, like, you know, Joe Biden would be the most conservative prime minister we would we would have had in this country for, for decades, you know. Yeah, um, I, I guess I guess that's what I always lament, man, is when you look at the European politics and, um, you know, we're talking about Canadian politics. It's just like the Democrats are so far right of like yeah. every other like liberal or even left liberal party. And it's so disappointing, right? Yeah, no, I can imagine. Yeah, it's <laughs> disappointing for me just following along as kind of an outside observer. Uh, this is why I try to do my do what I can from my lonesome perch up here, uh, shit posting and trying to <laughs> trying to push them in that direction. But uh, I was obviously I don't have a, a, the influence to do that. But yeah, that's got to be that's got to be frustrating. Um, and to go through that campaign like the Bernie Sanders campaign and and have someone that actually wants the Democratic Party to be good and to have so many like so called liberals who kind of claim who, who kind of claim that they're on the left and they're progressive to like constantly shit all over it. And he's like, no, 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 we got to have the crime bill guy. That's the only way. Sorry. That's the only option, man. And yeah. it's also just like when the pandemic started, you know, I don't want to get on Bernie too much, you know, because yeah, I always believe we got to move forward. But fast I, now, yeah. Yeah. But I, I do have to say, man, when the pandemic started, I was like, yo, imagine like maligning a man who like advocated for universal health care, right? When a global pandemic is imminent. Yeah. Right? Well, that's been one of the, the crazy things too about, uh, about this whole pandemic period is just the fact that, yeah, it's like, you know, the the Democratic Party basically did everything they can to ensure that he would not be the nominee because they're, they've convinced themselves or the, their donors have convinced them that 
that Medicare for all or universal healthcare in America, which is like non, this is an electoral non-starter. So you can't support that or you won't win the election. Yeah. Um, and then this global pandemic happens and it's like, Hey, maybe that would be beneficial to, to, for people to have healthcare <laughs> right now. Exactly. They still, it's still not enough for them to like change their minds on it and be like, okay, maybe we, maybe we were wrong on this one. And they're still yeah. just like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That is yeah. shocking to me still. Yeah. But like to connect it back to Canada too, but I think you and I both have, cause I've, uh, You've said some very, very strong things, you know, about uh, some of our past enemies that I, I, uh, I feel, you know, in yeah, Minecraft, yeah. of course, right? But yeah, of course, I talk about all kinds of parodies and satires <laughs> and uh, different pranks that maybe we could do sometimes, you know, hypothetical situations. <laughs> but I think what angers me the most is that, like, you know, whether you live in Canada or the U.S., like, if you're a leftist, criticizing the the right doesn't make any sense because, like whatever country you live in, these, these parties are fascistic death cults. Right. But like liberals, especially, we were talking about this earlier, just like this aesthetic, you know, that they like, you know, they put a front on, it, it infuriates me. Oh, yeah. Like so fucking much, dude. Well, I think that's in my sort of, as long as I've been following politics, I think that's when you've kind of first start paying attention to this stuff and you, you realize you, you, you know, you look at the liberals and you're like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not definitely not a liberal, but we're kind of on the same side. And the, yeah. and the conservatives, the right, we're like, we're kind of like against them. And then the more you pay attention, you realize, okay, no, it's actually flipped. It's they're yeah. on the same side and they're yeah. against us and they're trying to hold exactly. us back and they're trying to make sure that our ideas don't come to fruition. And that's the kind of journey that everyone has to kind of go along. And, and you can see that there's still many people that are still kind of caught up in that paradigm where they think the libs are kind of their friend and they're then it's like, well, we're on the same side. We may not agree on, on every single issue, but really we need to work together. But you realize that you're getting worked at the same time uh, exactly. by, by the right and the, the center. Exactly, man. Like, you know, we're always expected to compromise with liberals, but then like, you know, they'll shoot you in the back of the head and throw you in a fucking river. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can't yeah. trust them. Yeah, no, man. So, so like, I guess like to kind of continue with the NDP, if you could help me understand this, the, uh, the COVID response in Canada, like, what was that like, like having a government that was like a dual coalition between a centrist or center right party and like ostensibly like, you know, a left liberal party, what, what gains were Canadians able to kind of achieve? Cause it sucks here. Yeah, it does. Um, there's no getting around that. And uh, no, it has been, the response has been better. Like as much as I complain about Canada, I complain about the Liberal Party. It has been uh, definitely a lot better uh, than getting like one, one $1,200 check five uh, months ago. And then I just ball. got my shit today. My first one today. Oh, nice. So well, at least you got it. Yeah. At least I got it. Yeah. But that's the interesting thing. So we had an election uh, last year. And so the liberals lost their majority status. And even though the NDP in that election lost seats, I talked about how their campaign was good, but for a number of reasons that we don't need to get into, it's kind of a mm. long story, they ended up losing seats, but kind of became more powerful because they're, they're propping up the liberal government. The liberal needs their votes basically to pass budgets and to, mm. to, uh, to do stuff, to govern. So uh, they've been able to, I think, push the liberals on a number of different fronts to uh, ensure that their response is better. Uh, we got 2000 bucks a month. Um, means tested, so not everyone get it. I, you know, I would have preferred that to be universal. What the but... fuck is it with liberals? In <laughs> you got a means test. You got a means Jesus test. Yeah, I know. But yeah, so a lot of folks have been getting two thousand bucks a month uh, for the duration of this pandemic. That just kind of expired, but now they're transitioning to that into something that's maybe slightly worse. But I think the problem is that because of the way that the media establishment in this country is kind of like very much, they see themselves as like stenographers for the ruling class, basically in the liberal party. 
I don't think the NDP has gotten a ton of credit for the way that they've pushed the liberals in this direction. And in, in it's really just made Trudeau more popular in, num- in a number of ways to the point mm. that if we did have another election, they would probably end up getting a majority, even though he's got all these corruption scandals and the blackface yeah, stuff and all kinds, of, and all kinds yeah. of bad shit going on. But uh, there's, there's kind of a, an interest among this establishment media in this country just to sweep that shit under the rug. Um, so, and then there's another kind of factor, which is that, uh, as it's been described to me, a lot of the time when you talk about the NDP and pressuring the liberal party, uh, they're basically pushing on an open door and they're like pushing the liberals into these positions, which only benefits them. Like they're not really like insisting on things going far enough. They're really like, mm. they, they, they just want a little crumb of credit for, for things, you know, getting better slightly. Yeah. But really, they're they're only pushing the liberals to places that they're already willing to go already, kind of thing. Mm. And it's like the liberals that that's kind of what their thing is. They take the kind of ideas, the pod, the popular social democratic ideas, usually being advanced by the NDP, and they kind of absorb that into their sort of neoliberal Jesus agenda. Fucking, it's like remora on a fucking whale or some shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. exactly. But um, yeah, it, it obviously it has been better. It's been it's been nice to be able to get some relief. Like I've got a four-year-old son and he's wasn't in daycare for five months. So I was with him every single day. It kind of cut into a lot of the time, obviously that I had to like work yeah. and do stuff. Mm. So I, it was very beneficial definitely for me to be able to like get relief during that period. Mm. Um, so that's the kind of balance that you have to find though, because you, you have to be able to realize that this country is not perfect and there's a lot of ways that it needs to be better. There's a lot of ways that the liberal party is, is complete dog shit. And you can appreciate the fact that we have things, this like mild, pseudo social democracy uh, in place with healthcare, with this kind of like uh, emergency response benefit. But you have to like, I think what happens to a lot of people in this country, Canadians, even people that consider themselves like on the left is that they then become very complacent and they say like, ah, well, you know, we got, we have our healthcare, we have our, our, uh, you know, emergency response benefit during the pandemic. And then they're not really motivated, I think, to like ask for more or demand more, which we should be doing. Uh, because there's a lot of ways that our social democracy that's still remaining after decades of like means testing and, and chipping away at it, uh, is really lacking. Mm. Like, uh, you talked about universal healthcare, which is obviously great to be able to go to a doctor and not have to like pay when you leave. But, uh, for instance, we don't have pharmacare. So it's like, if you don't, if you don't have private insurance through work, you're paying quite a lot for like pharmaceutical drugs. Um, Wait, so is that not tied in with your universal healthcare? Or no, it's not. What the fuck? That's no, insane. so that's that's kind of offloaded to the private sector. Uh, so it's like in order, so yeah, if you want to get pharmaceutical drugs, you really have to have a job that, that pays private insurance or else you're going to pay a lot more for pharmaceutical drugs. Even if it might be less than the United States, yeah. it's still you're still paying a lot in comparison to what you would pay if you have private insurance. And it's uh, tied to employment. Yeah, exactly. Problem. Yeah. Exactly. And there's no, there's no dental care. Uh, there's no mental health uh, factored into that. So there's a whole lot of ways that like our social democracy needs to be improved and that our healthcare system needs to be improved. But like I said, I think people, uh, they look at what's happening in America, they look at how bad things can get and they just kind of say, well, you know, we're, we're doing okay. So let's not, let's not demand too much. And I think that's, yeah. that's kind of one of the things that I've been pushing for and the kind of commentary that I do is like, no, we do need to demand more and we need to like, yeah. we need to not accept that this is, uh, this is the, the best we can do. This is adequate, to even do, adequate. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think there's people that are waking up to that. But um, as I said, it's it's always difficult uh, when you have the good old US of A to compare yourselves to because then you have political leaders that are able to kind of like maintain the status quo here, uh, even if they're they're right wing fuck ups or whoever. It, it'll, it allows very powerful people to get away with a lot. 
um, yeah. by just having that comparison to uh, to compare themselves to. Yeah, man. It, it reminds me when the election happened, Trump got elected. I had so many fucking friends, yo, that said, like, I'm moving to Canada. Like, I'm moving yeah. to fucking Canada, you know? And it's like, no, dude, there is a history in, like, North America of, like, settler colonialism and slavery and, like, genocide as well, right? And we'll talk about that in a little bit against, like, you know, First Nations. And I don't know if you know anything, too, about the amount of, like, transgendered indigenous people, queer people that have, like, gone missing. Right, or women that have gone missing. Oh right, yeah, Canada too. Well, no, and the, I'll give you an example too of how fucking mm. dog shit our our political culture and our uh, media culture is. Which is, um, last year there was like a commissioned report from the government about the like epidemic of violence uh, and murder against indigenous women in this country, and they produced this report called the the report on missing indigenous uh, women and girls. And uh, what this report said, it was very like carefully compiled, like very carefully researched by the people that put it together. And what this report said is like, there's an ongoing genocide in this country against indigenous mm. people. It's not a genocide that happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago that's over. It's in the past. It's ongoing. It's still ongoing. And what the reaction to that was from like the political leaders in this country, uh, the people in the media uh, was not to say, hey, Jesus Christ, like what's, we need to take a look at this and we need to, you know, have a, some kind of reckoning about what's happened here. And we need yeah. to, we just need to make moves to make this better. We need to make this country more safe for indigenous women and indigenous people. Materially um, speaking. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not the conversation that happened. What happened was people said, well, I don't know about this word genocide. That's a little bit, Jesus that's a little bit harsh. Christ. Uh, we need to maybe tone that down. And you're, it's, it's disrespectful to victims of other genocides to say that there's a genocide happening in this country. And that was, there was like a week and a half of discourse about whether it's appropriate to use the word genocide uh, in this report. And then that was basically the end of it. That was the, mo that was the most that we talked about it uh, with our media class and nothing really happened. Like, again, I talked about Trudeau. He talked about the report and said, I respect the findings in the report. And he looked very serious about how, how much he cared deeply about it. Nothing actually changed about our culture, about our political culture, about the, you know, the law enforcement culture, the ways that this country has been failing indigenous women and in indigenous people for the, since this country was in incepted. Uh, nothing changed at all. We had we had a week long conversation about whether it was appropriate to use the word genocide, and then we kind of all moved along. And meanwhile, all these systemic issues just kind of stayed in place. Yo, it, it reminds me of two things. Like one, the word genocide, right, and what people think of as a genocide. I uh, majored in political science, and I took this uh, like global affairs class, and uh, we were paired into groups, and everybody had to kind of pick a topic. And these two girls, I remember, had genocide. These two black girls. And I raised my hand at the end and like asked, I was like, yo, would you consider the police brutality against like black Americans, right? And just systemic like institutional racism, would you consider that genocide? And this fucking professor who's a black dude from South Africa was like, nah, right? Like, it's yeah. like, yeah, dude, it's like the, the ways that like the perpetuation of like colonialism and like slavery and genocide in this country are so masked over you know what i mean well yeah i mean looking at america too in the history of african americans and transitioning from slavery to jim crow to and then the civil rights movement happens and then mysteriously all these communities get flooded with drugs these 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 drug yeah. laws and enacted by people like joe biden yeah uh, and then a whole generation of black americans get thrown in jail uh or gunned down in the street by police officers and then that's just kind of part of the status quo and you realize there's that there's a, a policy that's been in place for uh, for decades and decades since the country's been around and it might've had different names, but it's like, it's serving the same purpose ultimately. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, and that, that's like, which is fucking like infuriates me too. Like just, 
you know, Biden's like the 93 crime bill and how like he was the architect of that with like an art segregationist. Right. But like because as we were saying, liberals are able to like not only like sort of mold things into like a more aesthetically pleasing like form, but it's also they point to like Republicans. Right. Or the right. And they say to working class people. Right. Or people of color. What are you going to do? You're going to vote for them. Yeah, exactly. And you, you see how like that whole shift towards like law and order was done like in the late seventies and eighties with the democratic party where they're like, well, this is the kind of the the shifting political grounds and this is what we have to do in order to win elections. And, uh, that's what they did. And, um, you realize they kind of worked because they, they, they're unable to like push back on any of the ways that the right frames anything. Hmm. So they're like, well, in order to win elections, we don't want to be called soft on crime or whatever. So we've got to, we've got to be the law and order democratic party. We don't want to be called uh, socialists. Exactly. So then you have things like Joe Biden, you know, writing the crime bill that contributed to mass incarceration. You have like Bill Clinton when he was getting elected. Uh, there's that infamous scene of him like at a prison with like columns of like black prisoners behind Literally him. Literally slaves. Super fucking slaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and the way that they both, like both of those guys really are emblematic of the way that they've, uh, they failed black Americans and and made it a centerpiece of their like ideolo- ideology to imprison black Americans and and show that they're serious about cleaning up the streets or whatever. And just uh, this like mass proliferation of cops giving billions of dollars to cops and uh, allowing them to giving, you know, extending all the way to the Obama era, sending military equipment to them and allowing them to kind of like, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, So again, it's like, it's, there's a stretch from the 1980s to now, basically the democratic party where that's been a, a significant plank of their policy. And um, that's why I imagine it's probably pretty fucking frustrating to be a black American and be told like, no, this is your only option. This is the only thing you can ever do is to vote for the Democratic Party when throwing millions and millions of black people in jail has been a centerpiece of their policies for 30 years, 30, 40 years. Yeah, man. And I don't I don't want to get too stuck on this point, but I do want to mention one thing. And kind of the reason, too, why I wanted to talk to you is because you have like such a great analysis of like liberals. Right. And I think that comes from also like living in Canada, which is seen again as a social democratic utopia and being able to kind of pierce through that. And it it sort of reveals like just the impotency and the idiocy and like straight up the malevolence like of like centrist, like liberals, not just one party, you know. Um, But one thing I did want to mention, man, is that like I've been thinking like liberals always imagine like an enemy, an imaginary enemy in their head that doesn't exist. Yeah. And it just constrains like any sort of political thought, like imagination, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And just, yeah, the way that they've, uh, they, they sell the idea of the right being the enemy to people and, um, then turn around and govern like conservatives, like this, like that was the, uh, Obama was really a radicalizing figure for me too, because just like anyone Mm. in 2008, I followed the Obama campaign. I was really thrilled by it after eight years of Bush and the Iraq war and all the, the fucking nightmare of the Bush era. And I really, I believed all that shit too, about hope and change. And I really did feel like he was like a progressive and he was going to turn the page on all that stuff. And then for him to come in and immediately just start kind of governing like a conservative and, yeah. uh, and being like, no, 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 this is the only way we can build consensus and just dropping any idea of, of pursuing any kind of like a progressive agenda, staking his whole president, like first four years of his presidency on this like conservative healthcare plan uh, and, and ramping up, like, as you mentioned, he kind of ran on an anti-war platform talking because the Iraq war was so unpopular, uh, but then he ramps up drone warfare and he ramp, ramps up like warrantless assassinations and shit like that. 
And that for me was really radicalizing because it's like, okay, this is what liberalism is all about. It's about sounding a certain way and convincing people of this idea of optimism and hope and using this kind of progressive rhetoric and getting people excited that way. And then when it comes time to actually, you actually hold the levers of power, I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction. I'm going to reach across the aisle uh, and work with these fucking blood drinking conservatives <laughs> who, who just never stopped telling him to go fuck himself at the same time. That was another frustrating thing. It's like it, it, he's governing in a way that like, okay, you know, I guess I sort of understand the idea of like, oh, we need to build consensus and we need to work with the, all our political partners, whatever. It was obvious in 2010 that none of these fucking psychos had any interest no. in working with him at all. No, um, it's stuck and, beyond belief. Yeah. Absolutely. And they just kept trying time and time again to like, you know, if I do this conservative thing, will that make you happy? And it just, lo and behold, it never did. And there was eight years of that. Uh, <laughs> so that's I, that for me was a very eye-opening experience yeah. just paying attention to the Obama presidency because it's just like you see the limits of what liberalism has to offer. Mm. Um, and then if you look at Trudeau as kind of the Canadian Obama, uh, mm. it's been it's been kind of the same thing. And um, that's why uh, I've been kind of nervous for our Trump moment to come. Mm. I was a little bit worried that our Trump moment was going to come last year in the election uh, because I, I think Canada has kind of like a long history of politically following the trends in the US, uh, maybe a couple, maybe four or five years behind. But that didn't end up happening. But uh, I don't think we're out of the woods. I think I do think we're going to be dealing with our own kind of strain of right-wing populism. And you see just the way Obama kind of enabled that by uh, by governing to the right and allowing all these social problems to get worse and economic problems uh, and allowing space for like right-wing demagogues like Trump to rise and take advantage of all that misery that's being uh, perpetuated. And uh, kind of hoodwink people into supporting their their agenda, which is even more to the right and even more toxic and and uh, terrible for people. Yeah. Well, man, as I say, like you know, liberalism is the gateway to fascism, man. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because I saw people online too saying like, "Oh no, if you think if you think like a neoliberal like Biden is as bad as a fascist, then you know that's that's completely ignorant." But it's not really that's not really the way it works. But the liberals and the, especially like you know the modern the neoliberals. They were, they enable fascism. It's not, they don't mean, it doesn't necessarily make them fascists themselves, but, um, and like, you know, just in the same way that Obama enabled Trump, the concern is that even if Biden is able to win this election and right now it kind of looks like he is going to win, the concern is that he's going to enable an even worse Trump if he doesn't respond to the level of crises that America is facing right now, economically and environmentally and all these different ways. If he doesn't respond forcefully to these things and nothing about the history of Joe Biden's career indicates that he's going to respond forcefully. If he even serves a full first term, right? Yeah, exactly. That's that's a big if. Also, considering he's fucking decomposing in front of our eyes, his brain is tapping. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, that's the concern: is that even if you get rid of Trump, and and I don't like Trump either. I don't like uh, far right conservatives. I don't like a lot of the stuff Trump has done. Uh, But the concern, though, is that. Uh, Biden, if he's if he approaches the the next four years, if he gets elected and he approaches the next four years in this kind of milk toast way, uh, seeking compromise in the same kind of way that Obama did, you're going to get a, a worse Trump in 2024. Um, or whether it's Tom Cotton or whoever the next fucking uh, psycho is going to be, yeah, one of these guys. And that's that's the concern, and that's mm-hmm. uh, that's why this election is is kind of a frightening prospect because while I agree that. Uh, orange man bad and then mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't get the think, cheeto out of the white house yeah there's, there's a dang cheeto in the white house and all that stuff like i agree with that but 
Joe Biden winning also presents, it opens up kind of a whole new level of different problems that are then uh, have to be dealt with. And I'm not sure what the response to that is supposed to be. Um, and that's uh, that's why I was so invested in the primary, because I mm. kind of saw that as being the real election, because, mm. you know, that was that was that was the crossroad. Yeah, that was the the point where there was kind of a potential possibility of moving away from that path. Through electoralism, at least, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, that's that's the kind of frightening thing about this moment is that, uh, you know, tr- uh, Trump losing would be good, I guess, but then it opens up all these other problems. And I don't think the like, resistance wine moms are going to be so... Uh, so uh, into like going out and protesting and pushing Biden to the left like they suggest they're going to, and you know the the resistance people and the, the they were going to burn shit down because RPG yeah, died hey, exactly yeah yeah you're not doing shit um that's the, so that's the concern and I'm not I don't know what's going to happen and that's that's kind of alarming uh, time of monsters dead ass man um, yeah I, I want to jump to yo too because you know we were talking about this in DMs you brought this to my attention again um you know to kind of like link it with uh, liberals only paying lip service, right, to issues they, you know, profess to care about. Um, there have been, I mean, for decades now, like clashes between the Mi'kmaq uh, tribe, right, who are lobster fishers and yeah, settlers. From from what I can glean, and, you know, you'll help fill me in about this, but the response from the Canadian government, particularly the Department of Ocean Fisheries and the involvement of the RCMP in sort of standing by has led to this escalation where there have been like actual clashes, like, you know, hate crimes as well, like attacks on like uh, Mi'kmaq tribes, like fishermen. So could you kind of like explain that for an American audience who, yeah, who's not like aware of this right now? Yeah, I can try. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. I, this is something that I've been trying to learn a lot more about over the last couple of years, definitely, um, because... I grew up definitely in kind of the Canadian education system, which was very invested in telling, uh, you know, white middle-class suburban kids like me that like, oh no, all these issues are in the past Mm. and it's kind of all resolved now. And yeah, we, we were founded all this violence and settler colonialism, but then that's finished now. But we know when you start opening your eyes to what's going on in this country, you realize that's not really the case. Um, so this is kind of the latest escalation. Um, you know, earlier this year, there was clashes with the Wet'suwet'en tribe who were, I mentioned they were like organizing blockades against the coastal gas link pipeline. And you had the RCMP going into that you know, those camps and, and terrorizing those communities, which resulted in uh, a, a really kind of amazing protest. Uh, a couple, like right around the turn of the year, like right before the pandemic started, where this country was kind of getting shut down, and there was these big blockades going up on major highways and railways and stuff. It was very, very inspiring, and it kind of got scuttled by the uh, by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so that's kind of a separate issue. Uh, what's happening right now currently, uh, on the East coast is, as you mentioned with the, uh, the Mi'kmaq people who basically like there's a, there's a very, you know, prevalent commercial, uh, lobster fishing operation that goes on there. But then you have the, the Mi'kmaq fishing operation, which is like, they, they have been determined over the decades that the Mi'kmaq have a constitutional right to earn a moderate living from, uh, these fisheries that they have uh, for their tribal fisheries. The courts have determined that they're legal, like they're they have a legal right to mm. to have fisheries there, which don't always coincide with like the fishing season and and you know the things that are in place there to uh, ensure sustainability. But um, the Mi'kmaq, the way that they do the, the lobster fishing is done in a more sustainable way than what the commercial fishing does, and it's also just like in terms of an operation, it's infinitesimal compared to like the large commercial 
mm-hmm. uh, lobster fishing operation that takes place there. So they have a constitutional right to uh, earn a living from this from the fisheries, like regardless of what the season is or or whatever. Uh, so right now, while they're trying to do that, they're being basically attacked by uh, like colonialist uh, <laughs> settler uh, fishermen communities uh, who are. This has been escalating a lot over the last like month or so. They've been like uh, organizing blockades and like uh, harassing uh, Mi'kmaq boats, launching flares at them. Uh, this really started to escalate just a couple nights ago when you have like uh, someone's van was burned down and like thousands of pounds of love lobsters that were being captured or were like destroyed. Um, yeah, there was video today of them creating like uh, spike strips to like damage vehicles, uh, Mi'kmaq vehicles while they're doing uh, while they're doing these uh, the, going about their like fishing operation. And meanwhile, you have the RCMP just kind of standing by and not doing anything to stop this and not, and not do anything to protect the Mi'kmaqs, as I said, their constitutional right to earn a living from their fisheries there. Um, and when you go back into the history of the RCMP, this is another thing about Canada that I think is big, a big part of like the sort of propaganda campaign that gets perpetuated against people in this country and in the United States. You think of like the Mountie, the loyal Mountie, you know, he's the yeah. friendly lantern jawed guy. That red jacket, the, the hat yeah, exactly. and shit. Everyone yeah. loves the Mounties, right? Uh, but really, the, now what the RCMP's job has been since the foundation of this country is to terrorize indigenous communities, to take indigenous children away from their parents and put them in uh, you know, residential schools where they uh, they suffered like horrific physical and sexual violence and ha- and basically had their culture kind of like uh, purposely destroyed um, and alienated from their communities. And so this is this is the role. This is like what the RCMP's job is, and you can see that right now is that they're allowing these settler fishermen to kind of act as kind of like an extra legal arm of the RCMP to like fuck with the Mi'kmaq people and destroy their operation while the government kind of washes their hands of it. And even the Canadian government, even though the Supreme Court has given these indigenous communities uh, on the East Coast and elsewhere, these kinds of rights for hunting and fishing and these things, uh, the Canadian government has never really uh, agreed with that. And they've always kind of used whatever means they can to try and like ensure that uh, this doesn't happen. And this is just kind of the latest case of it. And the scary thing is that it is really starting to escalate. There's starting to be like more extreme violence uh, over the last couple of nights. The RCMP doesn't seem interested in stopping it at all. And uh, it's a really scary situation for the communities that are trying to earn a living here uh, in the, on the East Coast there. Uh, so this is, as I said, like this is a, the latest in like a long history of escalations between, uh, between indigenous communities uh, on the East Coast and elsewhere. Uh, this is the latest example of it, but it's, it's really frightening and it's, uh, it's, it's, really disgusting. It reminds me of like, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, other, yeah. Like just the fact that like this shit like happens where these like fascists, right. Harm, kill, like, you know, threaten, you know, counter protests, anti-fascists and the police literally just stand by and don't do anything. Or like give give them a little wink and a nod and toss them in the water. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, But like, I, I do like to kind of think about like ways in which and talk about ways in which like people are fighting back. Right. Is there any sort of resistance, right, um, of the Mi'kmaq people or indigenous tribes who are pretty much ignored by like the government? Well, right now, like I said, the, there was like a couple months ago, there was like something really like unprecedented going on with these blockades that were happening on highways and railways. And that's the, been the kind of frustrating thing about this moment is that there was something really kind of historic hap- starting mm-hmm. to happen. And then it kind of got scuttled by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of these these blockades kind of went away. And, you know, the COVID has hit a lot of these indigenous communities a lot harder than a lot of other communities, like just as it hits, you know, the poor and immigrant communities uh, more than it does like middle class uh, white people or the wealthy. 
So right now in terms of resistance, I think there's there's a lot of like solidarity. There's people kind of spreading the message. There's people that are supporting financially um, the Mi'kmaq people in any way they can. But um, right now there's still like this violence is still ongoing. And so far there hasn't really been much in the way of like organized resistance. Hmm. Uh, but it is also in the early stages of this conflict that's escalating a lot. So there's no kind of telling where it's going to go. I think eventually we're going to see a return to the kind of blockades and and rail blockades and and things that we were seeing a couple months ago, which was really, really cool. And also demonstrated how a, a small number of people can economically just paralyze this whole country. Hell yeah, shut it down. Yeah. And that's like whether you're, you know, everyone should show uh, solidarity to the indigenous communities and appreciate that. But that, that should be a lesson to anyone on the left, um, when it's, mm. which is that like, you know, our political class are not really on our side. They're not going to help us. Uh, but we do have an immense amount of power to, uh, to com- completely paralyze the, kind of the country economically. Uh, that was another thing at the beginning of the pandemic that I was kind of hoping people would kind of start to grasp. They're like, oh, you realize when everyone stays home and no one goes to their job, the economy completely comes to a standstill. Like, hmm, I wonder what yeah. we could do with that information, possibly. <laughs> exactly. <you know>? exactly. <laughs> um, and that's it. I, like, we're coming to a point, you know, not just America, not just Canada, but we're we're, we're reaching this like ground zero for uh, ecological breakdown and climate change uh, coming up, kind of a point of no return if we're not already past that point already. And, you know, I'm not really counting on the Joe Bidens and the Justin Trudeaus of the world <laughs> to uh, enact legislation that's going to solve this crisis uh, because they're capitalists and uh, we're not going to be able to resolve the climate crisis under capitalism. Uh, and we're not going to be able to appease the oil companies and appease the environmentalists. And we're not going to be able to do like, you know, we're not going to be able to have it both ways. So what that's going to mean is that eventually people are going to have to come to realize that like we can't, like we only have to ourselves to count on. Uh, and all we really have is to be able to support each other and have solidarity with one another. Uh, but we can, you know, as much as they need us to continue to uh, to keep the gears of the economy moving, if enough people get it in their minds that we're not going to allow that to continue, we can't actually do that. Um, yeah. it's, it's certainly not easy, uh, but, you know, we're going to reach a breaking point, I think, in in Canada and in the United States where we kind of get to the point where it's like that's kind of our only option left on the table. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's kind of, when you talk about harm reduction, I feel like that's where maybe there is a benefit to having people like Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau in charge rather than a, a far right psycho, <laughs> because maybe they're going to be able to negotiate. Maybe they're going to be a little less likely to just start, you know, machine gunning people in the street <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as the Trumps of the world might. Um, we hope, right? We would hope. We hope. Yeah. I mean, also I don't, I wouldn't put it past a Biden or a Trudeau to, uh, to start, you know, locking people up on mass. They kill Rosa, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, there's laws being put in place right now in Canada that's showing that's like, oh, if you, if you're, uh, you know, if you're participating in like an ecological uh, blockade or, or damaging pipeline infrastructure, you're like an eco-terrorist and you can have all your rights and freedoms to stripped away and things like this. So um, yeah, maybe, maybe that's not the quite the level of harm reduction that we need, but I do think that when it comes to dealing with uh, ecological breakdown and the climate crisis, that is, we're going to have to come to a point where we realize over the next decade, uh, or less that that's kind of our only option is to, uh, is to do what we can to just like completely grind the economy to a halt, uh, and force the ruling class to reckon with the fact that like, we can't continue along the same path and we can't do this half-assed, you know neoliberal bullshit where we talk about how great the environment is 
while you know subsidizing, while continuing to subsidize exactly. oil companies and build oil oil infrastructure across indigenous land and and you know terrorize the terrorize indigenous communities with the RCMP or the the federales or whatever in the United States that are like like you saw at Standing Rock, also under Obama. Hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind I of mean, my feeling on that. Nah, man. I mean, like the only way out is like through, right? Like yeah. together. And it's yeah, going to take exactly. like all of us, man. And, and you know, again, it's the idea that Canada is like this, like sort of utopia, right? Compared to the United States really obscures like the need for international solidarity, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, it does. And, and like the BLM protests, you know, and what you're seeing and have been seeing over the years, like with indigenous communities as well, there's that like overlap that I think like a lot of people forget about where it's like, dude, this is like, a continent built on like the genocide of one race and the slavery of another, yeah. you know, and just that sort of interracial, multiracial, like class solidarity is like the only fucking thing that's going to like get us out of this shit. Yeah, exactly. And uh, what the, really the most important thing too, is that, you know, people like me, like podcasters, I will be able to like, like if I have to, I'll withhold my labor, I'll stop producing content, I'll stop doing tweets. And I think that's, that's kind of one of the main things that's going to completely grind the thing to a halt. Mm. I really, really, yeah. really exactly. Yeah. So people, I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not afraid to withhold my labor and start a general strike for the first shit posters. No, but what, <laughs> <laughs> what you said is right though. Um, and it's funny because like people sometimes wonder why I get so passionate, why I'm passionate about what happens in the United States. Like, why do I care if Bernie Sanders gets elected who doesn't, mm. uh, or Joe Biden or, or Trump or whatever. Uh, but I think it's a sh- really short sighted way of looking at things. I mean, like, um, yeah, I know. I, I, <laughs> I think like anyone should be able to realize that like whoever's controlling the United States government, uh, has a big impact on Canada and has a big <laughs> impact on the entire world. <laughs> On a number As of you levels, Canada is like a couple of years behind the U.S. Right? Yeah, like exactly, trend. exactly. And um, that's it. If 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 we want to like just focusing on climate stuff, leaving aside like imperialism and all the other ways that that America really impacts the broader international community, like if we want to uh, resolve the climate crisis or have any hope of like stopping things, or you know, I I don't I think we're kind of past the point of turning things up in, in the other direction. Oh no, we're fucked. But yeah. We're waiting but, for the alien comrades right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we do need to, like the, the fundamental economy of the United States has to change. And there has to be some kind of a paradigm shift there. Uh, that's why I was really passionate about Bernie Sanders. I thought maybe that was, an, that was a possibility electorally to kind of push the country in that direction. And that's why it was frustrating that it got kind of stymied by the very people who claim to be, you know, on our side and on the mm-hmm. side of the, the environmentalists and the, the, the progressives. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's why I, I get so up in arms about this, this kind of shit, because we like the United States, if you look at global capitalism, the United States is like the beating heart of that. Right. So if you, if you view, yeah. And if you view global like capitalism as being the problem, the thing that's kind of pushing us over the cliff, well, you need to, you need to focus on the United States and focus on, on things changing there. Uh, because, you know, we can have a communist revolution tomorrow in Canada and we can overthrow the government and install a citizen, citizen's assembly and, and you know, uh, ban all uh, oil infrastructure and and give the oil executives the wall and whatever, all that shit. And guess Inshallah. what would happen? Yeah. And, and, and in Minecraft. But guess what would happen? The next fucking day, the CIA would, would infiltrate the country. The United <laughs> States would bomb us to, back to the Stone Age. Uh, we'd become the 52nd state or whatever. Uh, and that would we go would nowhere. Out real quick. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, uh, you know, I, 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 I obviously I'm going to continue advocating for this kind of stuff in this country. And I, you know, I think that's the direction we need to go in, but 
it, the shift needs to happen in America as well, or else it's just pointless. Mm. Uh, or any any gains that we're able to make are just going to get wiped out when the, the State Department or the intelligence community decides that it's time to go back to the status quo. That's what's going to happen. Well, man, like I think uh, Marx was it that like thought that socialism would arise in the United States first, right? Um, because like it was so, I guess, sort of advanced, like in terms of uh, you know capitalist accumulation, but. Uh, also, like just the contradictions within the U.S., man, like yeah. this supposedly like land of the free, you know. Yeah. And that's that's one thing that's been interesting about the last five years or so is that I think there are many people that are starting to wake up to that the fact that that's complete bullshit. Mm. And uh, as much as, you know, the Democratic Party has, has shifted to the right, I think, for in, in many ways over the last couple of decades. And people are people are very discouraged right now also because like the the Bernie campaign didn't work out. And it feels like the left has kind of no power. But if you look at where where the left was in the United States 10 years ago versus now, mm-hmm. it's a, it's night and day. There was no left 10 years ago, right? It didn't exist. It, the left was like West Wing liberals uh, yeah. writing in the Washington Post or whatever. Like that was that was as far as far left as you were allowed to be. It's supporting the Iraq war, right? Yeah, exactly. But but only only if it was done in a cautious way that didn't that took into account, you know, that efficient. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, if we if we keep the civilian casualties to fifteen percent instead of thirty five percent, then it's acceptable. That kind of thing. Uh, so I think if you look if you look at that, there's been a, a huge amount of progress in, in that time. And you look at you know there's I don't want to be one of those people that's like oh the kids will save us the the youth will save us. I don't necessarily think that's true. But there are a lot of kids now that are like teen fucking. They're reading Marx. They're like teen Maoists. Yeah. They're making status uh, memes and shit. Yeah, because and and understandably because they see the way that they're completely fucked in the future and the way that the economic system that the United States has perpetuated for decades has played a big role in that. Um, kids and are kids are, right. you know, kids are not stupid. I mean, some kids are. Like I was pretty stupid when I was a kid, but oh, I was a dumbass. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I think there are a lot of people that are perfectly aware of that. That are that are completely aware of the ways that they're being fucked by the economic system. That's another big thing. Difference between you know when I was a teenager and now you know I this was like you know the late '90s, early 2000s. Not to date myself, but like there was still the sense of like opportunity. There was still the sense of like oh you can go and to school and get a good job, and that that was still kind of like something that people believed. A future. Uh, yeah, and, and even in terms of climate change, uh, it was like okay, we know climate change is happening, but that's decades and decades in the future. We've got lots of time to kind of figure out a response to that. But over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. It's been like, oh, all those opportunities now after the the economic crisis, those that's all dried up. It's all just like gig economy bullshit. Like the climate crisis is happening now, not not ten years from now, or thirty years from now, or fifty years from now, but like literally right now. California's on fucking fire. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, kids are are perfectly aware of the ways that the their future is not looking really bright right now. And um, so that's I think that's something to be encouraged by. And that the, the way I see it, I like this decade is really kind of like a kind of an all or nothing kind of thing where a lot of stuff is going to be determined. And uh, as I said, things are going to come to a head eventually uh, over the course of this decade. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be an interesting time. <laughs> it, might, it might go very badly. Maybe, maybe it'll be positive and hopeful, but I think, I think uh, as we progress into this and these contradictions, like you mentioned, keep uh, keep coming up. The lack of opportunity persists, regardless of who's in charge, whether it's Biden or whoever. The climate crisis gets worse. You know, 
we are kind of just like getting to a breaking point where things are going to have to start changing uh, drastically. And, you know, the Canadian political system uh, is not set up for things to change drastically. The American political system is not set, is designed specifically so things will never change drastically. Things never good things never happen, but like, you know, bad things. I mean, bad things happen, but nothing ever changes. As you said, it's in stasis, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I think we're, we're reaching a breaking point in this decade and uh, I don't know how, which way things are going to break, but uh, it's certainly going to be interesting to, to see it happen. Yo, that's, that's actually a good note to leave it bad. Cause uh, I, I, again, I thought this podcast when I started it, it was going to be hella depressing, but like every guest that I've had on so far, like it sort of ends on like a positive note. And I feel like that's sort of akin if you're chilling with comrades, like having a drink, y'all are all fucked up. And then like, yo, shit sucks. <laughs> but then, you know, somehow like we all collectively realize, but like, ah, right, man, like we got each other though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm happy to leave it on that note as well. Oh yeah. Rob, I appreciate it so much, man. Uh, what, what do you have to plug for people to check you out at? Uh, okay. I got the Twitter account at Rob Rousseau. I've got two podcasts. So I've got one podcast at 49th Pair of Hell where I focus more on Canada. It was something when I started that, I kind of, I wanted an outlet to be able to talk about the United States and Canada and kind of be able to jump back and forth between both kind of depending on what was in the news. Um, I did start another podcast around the start of the election with my friend uh, Jordan Ewell called The Insurgents to focus more specifically on the election. Uh, so since then, the other podcast has kind of focused a lot more specifically on Canada. So I kind of have, yeah, I kind of have the, those two things kind of focusing on on the political news and situation in each country. Uh, so yeah, that's 49th Parallel on all the podcast apps and The Insurgents. Uh, you can find on all the different podcast apps and also Substack, uh, theinsurgents.substack.com. I like really recommend folks check out The Insurgents. Like shout out to Jordan. You and Jordan are like really funny in the beginning. You kind of do these like bits, yeah. you know, that are like, you know, super like dry humor and like hilarious. Yeah. That was not something we really planned on when we started doing the show. We didn't really think about it a lot. We were kind of just like, hey, we should do this thing. And we just, it just kind of came together. Yeah. But it ended up, so the beginning of the show is kind of this like ongoing kind of like radio play where we kind of make fun of that kind of West Wing liberalism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the so we kind of like have this ongoing storyline where we're this like, a democratic party, like consultancy group. Uh, and, uh, we, we kind of just like headquarters, right? Yeah, exactly. We have a whole like universe that we've created some, so I don't know how this happened, but this kind of happened organically, but we basically just like take the, take the things that liberals say and believe daily and kind of just like crank up the volume to 11, you know, and crank up the ridiculousness to kind of show how impotent and how silly it is. A lot of the things that they believe are and how devoted to two things like aesthetics they are over actual substance and policy and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a good show. It's fun to do that part. Um, we've also had a lot of great guests and talking about, uh, you know, the election and the following the, I thought it was going to be a show like about the Bernie versus Trump election. Too, it, it quickly, it quickly became something different and a lot more depressing as this, as the, the Bernie campaign fizzled out and this fucking global pandemic crisis happened. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's been a play. It's been fun to do. It's been fun to do, and I, oh, I enjoy yeah. it. So that's yeah. That's yeah. That's the insur insurgents. And I enjoy listening to it. Again, y'all check out 49th Parallel and the insurgents, and check out Rob on Twitter. And uh, I appreciate you, comrade, my Canadian comrade. I appreciate you, man. This is hey, nice. Man. Yeah, it was great to it was great to chat with you. Oh, Let's yeah. see you again sometime. Oh yeah. If you like this interview and want to support us, go to Patreon.com/slash AdamPod and become a patron for exclusive content, including weekly news updates.